Amen. Good morning, Calvary. What a great crowd we have today. Once again, if you're looking for just a little more space, you might could come to the 9 o'clock service, especially with Mother's Day coming up quickly. Um, that week we're usually really, really full. So if you want a little more space, you can come at 9. But we're glad you're here today as we continue our series, as we discuss what's next. And what's next is this idea of understanding that after we receive Christ, the Easter story has happened. We begin to look how this should change and shape the way we view life and eternity here in heaven and earth. Here in heaven, here on earth and in heaven. I said it backwards, okay. So this idea of what we're trying to walk through, last week we talked about after we receive Christ, this should change the way we view our life. And we have this God who's with us and walks with us and His presence guides us and guards us and gives us security. Now, let's be a little transparent. Most churches err on one of two sides when talking about earth and heaven salvation. They either talk about the idea of turn or burn. Anybody know what that means? It's the, the church background where you grew up where the preacher all he talks about is heaven and hell over and over and over again. You're like, we get it, but shouldn't it be about this life too, right? Or we err on the side of not talking about heaven and hell, and we just talk about the benefits of receiving Christ here on this earth. This is not a new idea. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees even practiced this because the Pharisees really talked about the next life, and the Sadducees, well, they were sad, you see, and only concerned themselves with this life. Thank you, Bill Albrighton. Okay, so as we think about this and through this, what we're trying to do is to say, yes, the God of this universe came down in the form of a baby named Jesus, the Christmas story. He came and lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross, the Easter story. He was buried and resurrected to new life, and those who have a relationship with him will have a better life on this earth because this is where we find his presence, his peace, his hope. But there's a next life we need to understand as well. To explain this, I want to go through a tried-and-true illustration we discuss here pretty frequently because repetition is a good way to remember things, okay? And so I want you for just a moment to imagine this is a life jacket. It is not. And all the engineers in the room would point that out to me very quickly. So, but this is a life jacket, all right? So the idea of salvation is imagine yourself on a boat, once again, not the Titanic, a little dinghy, and you know the boat is going down. This represents our life. At some point, you realize, I'm in trouble because there is no land anywhere near around. I'm going to eventually die. We all recognize we're all eventually going to die. If you don't, you need to absorb that reality right now. You will eventually die. And when you die, you're going to need to be saved. So, in anticipation of that, what we recognize is, I need to accept Jesus. So the moment you put on the life jacket, you are saved, right? This is what it means to accept Jesus. It gives you security. It gives you peace. It gives you hope while on this earth. It should change your perspective because you're no longer fearing death because you know the boat's going under, but I am now secure. However, there is another level of salvation, and that's the moment that the boat goes under the water and the life jacket actually keeps you afloat. This is representative of our eternal salvation, and this is Jesus. What he does for us, this is walking in his presence and living in his life. So as we're talking today, we're talking about the boat is now under how does this jacket save us for eternal life? Once again, two levels of salvation. I put this on, the boat's still afloat. It changes my perspective, gives me security, assurance, hope. The boat goes under, 
it saves me and allows me to not drown and live forever with God, forever and ever and ever. Amen. Okay? Good, I'm going to take this thing off now. And the reality is, this is important because the boat will go under, and we all need to face this truth. One day, we will stand before God. That's what's next. One day you will die, and you will stand before God. And to look at this, and how this works, and what, what we understand, I'm going to go to the book of Revelation, which I don't speak very much off on, because the reason I don't speak very much on it is often misinterpreted and used for just reasons I don't agree with, okay? So let me give you a summary of the book of Revelation with two words. Ready? You're, you're going to, Daniel, you're going to summarize the entire book of Revelation in two words? Yes, here's those two words. God wins. That's the point. And you can try to read into Revelation and try to understand exactly how the world's going to end, but the best scholar minds don't, don't agree, so I doubt that you're right. So just want to throw, the point is God wins. And that's the encouragement and the hope that we get from Revelation. But it also does give us some practical things to understand. One of those is found in Revelation 20, 14 through 15. As you stand before God, there is two real places that exist, heaven and hell. Death and Hades were thrown into a lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire represents hell. Now, some of you are like, Daniel, you said you weren't going to do a turn and burn type sermon. I'm really not. I'm trying to tell you that hell is real. And one day you will face the Father, and if you don't have Jesus in your life, you're going to drown. And the result of that is you will spend forever separated from God into an eternal place called hell as represented by the lake of fire. Now, can I be really transparent with you? Most of us in the Western world, our idea and understanding of what hell is is a derivative of what we got off Tom and Jerry. There's a little guy with a pitchfork wearing a red outfit chasing you around poking you, right? Or, or there's flames or, or a Halloween show we saw. And, and, and I think there is terror in hell. But let me tell you the most terrorizing part of hell is living in a world forever separated from God, which is what you and I were made for. Living in a world with no hope, with no opportunity for faith. Living in eternity knowing that you will forever not have the purpose that you and I were made to. Is there danger there? Is there, yes. Is there torture there? Very likely. Is there all of that? Yes. But the ultimate problem with hell is you are eternally separated from God. Now, that begs the question, why would a loving God allow people to go to hell? Because love is a choice. And God's not going to force you to love him. If you're sitting there going, I don't want to worship God on earth, why would you want to worship him forever and eternity? Because heaven is not necessarily going to be a big, big house where we play football and watch unlimited football and get to eat all the food and cake and ice cream and gain no calories and, and get to do all those things. Heaven is not going to be getting to do what you and I want. <coughs> Excuse me. Rather, Heaven is going to spend an eternity with God in His presence and in His peace, glorifying God. So hell is real, is a real place with eternal ramifications. But so is heaven. So how does receiving Christ 
enable us to get into the presence of God? How does receiving Christ enable us to have the presence of God? Revelation 19, 6 through 8. I love, love, love these three verses. Let me give you a little caution. It took me years to understand them and reading a lot of commentaries. So if you're sitting there going, this is a little overwhelming, I'm going to walk you through it, okay? Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying. We just heard the loud thunder in the song that Chris just sang. And here's what was said. Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. What are they doing in heaven? Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. That's what they're doing. They're singing. Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns reigns can i just pause for a second this is what excites me about heaven have you you ever been in that camp experience where you just feel like the goosebumps are standing up right or in that church service where god is just so real and so you're like man i i don't ever want this moment to to end that's what heaven is heaven is not going to be a, a bunch of people gathered in a room where the men are awkwardly staring down because it's uncool to sing we're not going to be worried about why is he raising his hand? Don't they know they're distracting for everybody else? Only person they're distracting is you. It's not going to be a place where we're, we're sitting here going, boy, I don't know if my voice is good enough for my, for my neighbor to hear it. Excuse me, one second. Heaven's not going to be a place that we need to drink a bunch of water for a scratchy voice. Heaven is not going to be a place where singing is a problem. In fact, I want you to think of after you go to a Purdue game, right? Let's say we're at Mackey Arena and we're playing uh, those disgusting looking, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that, our arch rivals. Imagine who that might be. And right at the last minute, in triple overtime, we have an an alley-oop lob pass with .1 seconds and we score to win. Imagine the eruption of noise that happens in Mackey Arena and no one's having to say, wait, 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 this is a big moment, everybody scream, Right? It's a natural, this is what heaven is going to be like, in my opinion, of singing. You will want to glorify God from now to eternity. So church, maybe we should practice that a little bit on Sunday morning. Maybe we should get a little more comfortable really singing to the glory of God. Because this is what he is worthy of. So he sings, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. So it says, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has prepared herself, and she has given fine linen to wear bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. The fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. What is that talking about? Well, the righteous acts of the saints means your actions are right. And I don't know about you, but my actions often don't feel right. I'm not perfect, so I don't know that when I stand before God, I'm going to feel like my actions are right. In fact, the Bible tells us you won't. The Bible tells us over and over again that when people encounter the holiness of God, their first and initial reaction is, oh no, I'm about to die. So how can our actions be righteous? Because it represents the fine, the fine linen represents the righteous acts of God. The fine linen. Well, where do we get the fine linen? Uh, the fine linen comes from previous when it says, let us be glad and rejoice because the marriage of the lamb has come and she, his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear bright and pure. In fact, the marriage 
that is described here is a representative of what we do when we practice marriage today. The brides usually wear a dark gray, no, they wear what? A white dress. And the white dress represents the purity that they're bringing into the relationship. The idea of, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be pure with you, I'm going to live with you, I'm going to, this, the fine linen represents the purity. And God says, when he looks at us, he sees us dressed like a bride on her wedding day. This is cool. So the way this looks is, we get to wear this. So when God looks at us, it's not a dress, you're right. But it's, it's the idea of, uh, of the presence of God is with us. And so when we, we put this on, this is what God sees. What is this? It says the marriage of the Lamb has come. It doesn't say the marriage of Jesus in us. It doesn't say the marriage of the Son. Why does it say the marriage of the Lamb? The marriage of the Lamb is important because just like in the Old Testament when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were perfect and walked with God and only knew good until they ate of this, the tree of the sin of the tree of good and evil. And then they now knew what evil was. And their immediate reaction once they knew evil was, oh no, I am naked. Or as a good Texan would say, naked. I'm no longer comfortable in the skin I'm in. And so ever since then, we've been wearing clothes. Thank you for wearing clothes. Because sin has not only our sin, but other people's sins, no longer allows us to be comfortable with who we are. No, we can't walk around. And, and, and this is the result of sin. But when God looks at us, He doesn't see our shame. Instead, He looks at us and He sees, wait for it, His Son. How? Because when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned, what's the first thing that God did? He sacrificed an animal and clothed them in the skin of an innocent animal, representing what Jesus would ultimately do in the cross. This has always been the story. So when Jesus died for us, the lamb, you get it? The marriage of the lamb. When the lamb was crucified and his blood was poured out on us, God clothed us with the very presence of Jesus. So when God the Father one day looks before us, when he sees us, he will see us righteous, not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. Not because of what we look like, but because of where we are walking in the presence of God. It's not a righteous act that saves me. It is being right by walking in the presence of God. So when we take on the presence of God, the blood of the Lamb covers us, and we are saved. That's the beauty of that passage. So one day you will stand before God. And it won't be what you can rationally say to him that will save you. If you think you're a debater, you can't debate God. If you think you can outwit, you can't outwit God. One day you will stand before God and all that will matter is, do you have the Son with you? So this is what we've been talking about. What's next? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's really simple. It's not a matter of actions. It's recognizing that you and I are imperfect. We're not comfortable in the skin we're in. You've made mistakes. And you recognize that and you repent. In other words, you turn away from that and you turn to God who has created a plan for restoration through what Jesus did on the cross. 
The restoration is to bring you back into a right relationship or a marriage-type relationship, a covenant-type, forever-and-ever-type relationship with God himself. It's not something you do once a week. It's learning to walk with God every day for the rest of your life. And when you do that, it changes who you are. And then God looks at us, well, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is what makes us pure. Like a bride on her wedding day, you are beautiful. So, Revelation 21, 7 and 8 says, The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, the share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, the one who conquers, conquers what? Death. How do we conquer death? By accepting Jesus. You see, we, we often say a prayer. We've talked about this before. But it's not the prayer that saves us. It's actually entering the relationship. Saying, God, I give you my life and walking with him forever. If you've never done that, we encourage you to do that today. How do I do that? We're going to have some people up front that would love to talk to you about that after the service. You can go to yourcalvary.info slash baptism. You can scan the QR code on the back of your chair. You can talk to any staff member anytime. You can go to the first impressions that we make it pretty easy, y'all. But it takes you doing that and taking the, the op- opportunity to do that. But if you don't, the cowards, uh-oh, I'm a coward sometimes. The faithless, I don't even have to read the rest of the list. I, I, I'm in that category, right? If I don't accept Jesus, then I'm going to be going to what they call the second death. So what's the second death? I had a pastor who used to say this. If we are born once, we will die twice. But if we are born twice, we'll only die once. So here's the way this works. We're all born at least once, right? Congratulations. Your mother birthed you. Good job. You had no part in that. Well, you did, but you didn't really know what you were doing, right? You just kind of, oh. Well, here I am. So when you're born once, if, you're, if that's the only time you're born, you will die one day on this earth. And then you will die when you stand before your father to spend an eternally separated from him. You'll die twice. But if you're born twice, I was born onto this earth, and there comes a time when you accept Jesus in your life. In other words, you're buried in the cross, which represented baptism, and you're raised to new life. You're born again. That's what we mean when we say you're a born-again believer, which we don't say anymore because everybody misinterpreted it. But when you're born again to a new hope, a new life, a new relationship with God, then the only death you'll have is when you cease to breathe on this earth and you'll stand before the Father and he'll welcome you into an eternal life. If you're born once, you'll die twice. But if you're born twice, you will only die once. Oh, I hope you choose to be born again. Now, here's the important thing. This changes the way we should live. And it realizes that while this earth is still hard, it changes our perspective. And we live for the next life, what's next, heaven come. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's our current life. And the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is representative of us, those who have given their life to Jesus. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, once again, 
like a bride adorned for her husband. That's the idea that we're in a relationship with God himself. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. I like to imagine the best announcer's voice ever, right? God is dwelling with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Amen. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Amen. Because the previous things have passed away. So real quick, what are three things that we can get from heaven? Heaven will be a place where hope and faith no longer exist because they have been realized in the presence of God. You won't need hope in heaven. Why? Because hope says that there are difficult days ahead, but I hope they turn out well. Hope isn't necessary in heaven because it's realized. Faith isn't necessary in heaven because faith is believing what we can't see and we will see it all. So one day, two hallmarks of our life as a Christian on this planet, faith and hope, will not be hallmarks of our life in heaven. Faith and hope will cease. Why? Because heaven will be a place where no more sorrow, pain, or death. Amen! I went to a funeral this week really hard. I'm sure you've been to a funeral really hard. I'm sure that anxiety and worry and stress have all been a part of your life at some level this week. I'm sure that there's been doubts, insecurities. I'm sure one day all of that will cease to exist when we are clothed in the presence of God. That's what heaven will be. Do you want to go there, right? Heaven will be a place we live permanently in the presence of God. I can't underscore the importance of that. So here's the invitation. We want you to live with God both now and forever, but we also want you to understand that, yes, while on this earth, the Bible talks about celebrations. Yes, while on this earth, nobody wants to be around a bunch of Eeyore Christians going, oh, oh, it's so hard. Yes, we celebrate, we rejoice, because we're engaged to the bride, right? We're engaged to the groom, whatever. We're engaged to God forever, and our wedding day will come. Our eternity will come. But it's not here yet. So we live with an eternal mindset. Eternity is a hard concept to grasp, but let me explain to you in a, a kind of a brief illustration of how this might be important. I want you to imagine that you went and took a grain of sand, single, I mean, think about it, a little single grain of sand, and you took one grain of sand out that represented every day of your life, and you began to put one grain of sand into a bucket for your entire life. Now, according to Google, the average person lives 27,375 days. I have no earthly idea how many years it is, but in this room, somebody will text me, I'm sure, by the end of the service. In fact, many of you will, because you'll think I care. And so the idea of that is, <laughs> if you took 27,375 grains of sand and put them in a bucket, According to the average weight of the grain of sand, that would equate to about three and a half pounds of sand by the end of your life. Three and a half pounds of sand. That's a lot of sand, right? Now let's say you continue taking one grain of sand after you died to representative of your life in heaven. Now, an eternity doesn't cease to exist, but let me just give you a little illustration to help you see how that might work. Let's say you kept doing that, and you kept doing it till all the grains of sand on this earth ceased to exist outside of that bucket. Do you know that that would entail seven quintillion, five hundred quadrillion grains of sand? 
that, if my math is correct, and it may not be, but I think it is, 18 zeros. 7, 5, and 18 zeros. That's a lot of days to live. And here's what I find a lot of us are doing. We're obsessed with that one grain of sand. When in the bigger picture, that 7 quintillion, 500 quadrillion is more sand than it would take to fill Mackey Arena. It's more sand that would probably fill up the state of Indiana, although I'm not totally sure about that. It's a lot of sand, people. And if you think about that, and you think how often we obsess over the moment instead of having a bigger reality, that's why we fall and fail. The enemy wants you to be obsessed with today instead of eternity. You want to walk in the presence of God? You want to experience peace? It can start here and now. Oh yes, there will be struggles. And one day, we, le- we cling to hope and faith, but one day we will no longer need to cling to that hope and faith because we get to live with God forever. So our daily training is this. Wake up each day with an eternal mindset. To realize that what we're doing in this life is just a small, 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 minuscule fraction on eternity. And that should shape every part of where we live. Here's how this works. Next week, we're starting a new series called Behind the Sunday, Why We Gather on Sunday and Why We Do What We Do. Little things like why we sing, why it's important. Little things like why we gather and why it's important. And I think that's important for us to understand because I think sometimes we get so caught up in this little grain of sand and we miss out and we sit there and go, ah, let's go to the beach instead of going to Sunday. Let's, let's, let's go to this event. Let's do this. Let's go, let's go here. Let's, let's go there. We, we get distracted instead of realizing that what we're actually called to do is to live for an eternal mindset which calls us to come into the presence of God, to learn to walk with the presence of God, to share the presence of God, because that's what an eternal perspective is going to be all about. It's not about what I can do to entertain myself today. It's not about the immediate gratification. It's about the long-term trusting that God has a plan and a purpose for our life and trusting Him. I don't want to scare anyone into heaven, but I do want us to have a righteous fear, a fear of missing out on the presence of God. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I want to invite you to that, the wisdom and the presence of God to accept Him for how good He really is, to trust in His peace and His presence. You are not the result of a mathematical improbability. You are lovingly, carefully created. I believe woven together in your mother's womb, birthed at just the right time to hear of how good He is today. Please, from the bottom of my heart, realize how important this decision is to live for eternity. God, help us to grasp the concept of that. As overwhelming it might be to think of eternity, may we walk in the presence of who you are. God, because there will be a day where we will stand before you. There will be a day when those of us who are walking with you will get to sing how great you are. 
There will be a day when we cease to live on this earth. So God, help us to, to wrestle with that now. I pray against the spirit of confusion right now in the name of Jesus. I pray against the spirit of distraction right now in the name of Jesus. And I pray for your presence to fall, Holy Spirit, so that we might sense you, walk with you, live for you, and give an account for how good and glorious you are. May we rejoice for the marriage of the Lamb has come. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Let's give him the passion he deserves. Let's get a little reckless with our praise this morning. All right? Let's stand and sing and rejoice to God.